All right. Want to go ahead and read the thing? Here we go. A barnstorming show was nothing short of a spectacle. In the 1920s, onlookers would gasp as planes would fly straight at each other only to miss by mere inches, loop-de-loop, tens, dozens, maybe even a hundred times, swirl in intricate patterns, mock dogfight in the air, and have stunt performers doing things that defied all senses of logic and safety. Walking out on the wings of their planes and waving at the crowd below, swinging themselves under their planes, hanging from ropes by their teeth, all done without parachutes, all done without safety cables, and again, all done in the 1920s. As a crowd watched, however, a disaster began to unfold. A plane that had recently taken off from the ground swerved suddenly, and a round object fell from it. A wheel. The announcer's voice took on a tone of alarm. People began to point and shout, and then a woman named Gladys Engel would take the stage. She would grab a bag of tools, she would strap a spare wheel onto her back, she would climb into another available plane, meet up with the in-danger plane in midair, walk out along the wing of her plane, and transfer over to the troubled aircraft. Calmly, she would swing herself underneath it to attach the new wheel and save the day. The plane would land, and she would step out to the full-throated cheers of the crowd. Again, and again. It was a stunt. A stunt performed by an amazing stunt woman at the time when women could not vote. The fact that it was planned in no way made the danger any less real. Without that wheel, the plane would crash upon landing. Without a parachute, Gladys Engel would die if her feet or hands slipped while she performed. Many fellow performers did just that. One of those performers was the first American woman of African and Native descent to get a pilot's license. At the time when the United States was still segregated, black women were doubly disenfranchised, and Native women weren't considered much at all. Her life was full of incredible flights and stunts, and her death stunned the entire barnstorming community. On this episode of Relative Disasters, we're going to talk about barnstorming, Gladys Engel, the 13 Black Cats, and the amazing career of Bessie Coleman. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my sister and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Greg, stunt pilot director for the RD Angels. And I'm his sister Ella, air safety coordinator for Relative Disasters Airlines. I have some questions about the name of that airlines, by the way. Do we really want to call it Disasters Airlines, it's even if they're the relative branding. disasters? We want to be it on brand, brand for everything. Um, That's very tricky. We don't we don't spell it out on the side of the airplane. We just have the RD inside. <laughs> RDA, of the yes. Big heart Excellent. with wings, Excellent. maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, that's a good that, that's a good logo. All right. So, what do you know about barnstorming, Ella? Well, Greg, I know that it is not a career that I personally would have been comfortable <laughs> in as a nervous person. Uh, it involves planes in some planes, fashion. Nerves of steel. <laughs> Uh, death-defying stunts, yeah. absolutely no safety yep. equipment. Uh, yeah. And these were the early days of flying, right? Oh, yes. So basically, barnstorming started in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. 
The first Barnstormer is credited to be a Charles Foster Willard, who had been taught by Glenn Curtis. Now, Glenn Curtis and the Wright brothers both had had early exhibition flying teams Mm -hmm. that were popular before World War I and really led to the rise of aircraft use during the World War. Now, the United States made a lot of biplanes in the First World War, Mm -hmm. and this biplane was ubiquitous. This thing was called the Curtis JN-4, or the Jenny. Every single pilot knew how to fly a Jenny. They were they were the the compact car of the day in terms of in terms of what you would learn on basically. Now were they easy to fly? They were relatively simple to fly, especially once you've been trained on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, As with <laughs> they, most things. Uh, they didn't have a huge uh, amount of speed, which led to a lot of the stunts. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would go like 60, 70 miles an hour. But when you compare that to like you know, how fast a jet goes, for example. They're not that that quick. Sure. Now, when the war ended, the U.S. government had a whole bunch of surplus jennies, and they needed to get rid of them and raise some money to help pay for, you know, the war. They had a yard each, sale. Yeah, they basically did. They basically did. They had a surplus sale. And um, the jennies cost about $5,000 in 1920s money. Mm-hmm. Which is a lot, yeah. But the go- that was their cost to the government. The government was selling them at this surplus sale for about two hundred dollars. Pennies on the dollar. <laughs> Pennies on the dollar, <laughs> as they say in the infomercial. Um, that's now the a really only problem deal. was it's a great deal. It's a great deal. Everybody go out and buy a Jenny. Now the problem was was that um, once you bought one, how do you make money? I mean, you carry things. You you... Yeah, but you don't really. There, there are basically three careers that a pilot can take at this time. Okay. Okay. You can you can try carrying the mail, right? Which is fine. You can try smuggling, which is also a time honored tradition of 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 pioneer travelers. Mm-hmm. Or you can try making some money by doing barnstorming. These are not passenger planes, right? You can't like carry people no you can't you can't carry people you carry the pilot and maybe somebody in the back right and that's about it a mail sack so bag of drugs yeah oh yeah okay a couple you know black market platypuses you're good (laughs) in america never (laughs) sorry go ahead (laughs) so barnstorming itself Mm -hmm. was a pretty cool kind of underground industry how, so how did it get the name if i may ask i, I i'm gonna get into the name because the name is great okay i've actually found a couple different sources that state different ways in which they got the name so i literally am just picking the one that i like the best Excellent. what these pilots would do is they got together in these groups called flying circuses okay <laughs> sure where Monty Python gets the name. I was just and say what that. they would do is they would advertise that they were, you know, they were going to come and they were going to put on a huge circus show mm-hmm. up in the air cuz that's basically what they were doing. Fun. And so they would fly out to somewhere where it was nice and flat and Midwestern United States farm country is perfect for that. Mm-hmm. And they would negotiate with a farmer to rent part of their field to use as a takeoff and the landing strip basically. Okay. All right. Makes sense. And then they'd fly over the nearby towns 
and drop flyers <laughs> advertising that they were going to do a, a, a barnstorming show. Okay. And these things, you got to understand how popular these were. Towns would shut down mm. when a barnstorming show came to town. Like, everyone would go. You'd have a ghost town and everyone would be out in this farmer's field watching these people do these incredible stunts. And uh, and so you'd charge people admission. Mm -hmm. You'd charge people to uh, come up with you in a plane. Oh, no, thank you. For example, Charles Lindbergh got his start as a wing walker and a barnstorming crew. Interesting. And he used to charge people $5 to take him up in his plane for 15 minutes. Hmm. And that's not bad. Uh, that's not bad. Bad money. No, not at all. And so what they would do is they would fly very low to let everybody know that they were arriving. Mm -hmm. And as the planes, you know, you'd have four, five, sometimes as many as nine planes buzzing this town. And that would be your barn storm because they'd be going over the barns. Yeah. But, of, of farm country. But storming. Yeah. Because, I mean, think of the noise and the wind they'd kick up. They'd literally pass like 10 feet above your barn. <laughs> the reason that barnstorming really took off was the fact that, one, you had a pile of crazy people who were willing to do just about anything in an airplane mm -hmm. to make people uh, pay you money to watch it. Sure. There was no real regulation on aircraft at all yeah, at this time. Yeah, it sounds like uh, OSHA was not involved. <laughs> No, any of this. no, um, <laughs> you didn't need a pilot's license. Okay. Oh, oh, we're at that point of the aviation. Industry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. We're at that point. You needed an interest. I mean, you needed to know how to fly the plane. And a plane. But in the United States, you did not need a pilot's license. Oh, that's such a bad idea. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> well, because a lot of the guys who would purchase these planes got them as military surplus because they were former military. Sure. So they knew how to fly them. Right. So it'd be kind of like asking somebody to have a license for their car in like 1909 or something you know i checked you do actually need a license now. <laughs> okay that's some comfort <laughs> sorry go ahead all right so one of the most popular stunts that these uh flying circuses would perform mm -hmm. was this thing called wing walking and there were two ways that wing walking was done okay so way one was you have a pilot and a wing walker and the pilot flies the plane, and then the other guy gets up on the wing, and he'll wave to the crowd. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, that is astonishing in 1920. But by 1929, you've got a lot of competition. So people were doing crazier and crazier things. There's some great pictures from the time period of people playing tennis on the wings of oh, a flying plane. Yeah, okay. Yep. People hanging upside down from a rope ladder by their feet from a plane mm -hmm. all this stuff it's it's it looks nutty but those were the wing walkers the other way that wing walking stunts could be done was the pilot themselves would get out and up on the wing of the plane yeah how can we make this more dangerous dance around a bit exactly yeah. okay so other than wing walking the the other stunts that were typically performed were uh, dangerous airplane stunts. So the stunts involving the plane itself, not just people climbing around on it. Right. Uh, among those stunts were things like the loop-de-loop, -loop, mm -hmm. the figure eight, and, of course, the sustained loop-de-loop, -loop, where a pilot would loop over and over and over and over and over and over 
and somehow one not fall out and two not lose their ability to keep the plane going because remember these planes we're not talking about modern planes we're talking about biplanes mm -hmm. things that would stall out and crash you know if you sneezed too hard and you have somebody doing 90 loop-de-loops at once, and yikes. My stomach hurts just thinking about that, sorry. I, it, it, I, I can't do it. I can't, I can't, I can empathize. I cannot, like, put myself into their, into their shoes. Yeah. Um, now, Barnstormers didn't make a ton of money. Uh, usually, you'd have two or three big shows. Mm -hmm. You'd get paid for those big shows, but that had to last you the entire year. So a lot of them would seek out sponsors, and a lot of them would seek out airplane companies to sponsor them. Because, ah. you know, that would be a smart thing to do. Listen, we'll fly your planes, mm -hmm. make your planes look awesome. But the problem is, is that while a bunch of aircraft manufacturers sort of sprouted mm -hmm. due to the, the very new-at-the-time airplane craze... Most of them folded after a couple of years, even if their planes were great, mm -hmm. because the market didn't really expand the way that people thought they would. People thought that everyone would own a small plane and just fly to work in it. I mean, and that's the dream, cars right? Instead. Yeah, right? Now I want to talk about one of the coolest performing troops and one of the coolest people in that. And that is the 13 Black Cats stunt troop. Okay. Now, the 13 Black Cats were based out of Hollywood. Of course. <laughs> they were basically advertising themselves as uh, stunt performers for films. And ah. they did perform in a bunch of... Uh, they did perform a bunch of stunts in films. That's so clever. Yeah, very cool. They named themselves after every conceivable thing of bad luck you can have. There were 13 members. They proudly wore, like, jerseys with black cats on them. Mm -hmm. They would apparently go so far as to, like, walk under their boarding ladders before climbing up into the cockpits, uh, break mirrors on their way down, That's stuff like that. that a little too far trying to just trying to invoke as much bad luck as possible and not one of them died in the course of their stunt work interesting just so we're clear on this mm -hmm. that is very abnormal i was just <laughs> for, about to ask you for one of these groups what yes. the lifespan was of the average barnstorming pilot it really depended you have some people who would be you know they would they would slip and fall at 25 years old and that's it there would be some people who'd get up and their plane would get into a spin and they couldn't correct it and they crash into the ground. Mm -hmm. Lots and lots and lots of people died in performances, not even in, I mean, a lot of them died in practices too, but like yeah. people did die in performances. One of the, one of the uh, troops apparently once remarked that quote, people are paying to see if one of us dies. And I was quote. just going to say, <laughs> say, I think that's part, a huge part of the attraction. Like, it's right? so exactly. dangerous yeah. and you don't know what you're going to see. You know, there's the subset of NASCAR fans who are there to watch the crashes. Mm -hmm. And well, this these are their direct antecedents. Nice. Gladys Engel was the sole woman in the 13 Black Cats. Okay. She was not allowed to pilot a plane. Why? Uh, but uh, because she was a woman and being a woman will interfere with your ability to fly a plane properly, I oh. assume. I have, there's actually no documentation on that's that. That's interesting. Okay. Right? I mean, that you have to, you have to assume that that's the reason why. Uh, but she was their premier stunt performer. Mm -hmm. She 
was the one who would get up on the wings and play tennis with one of the guys. She would get up on the wing and jump from plane to plane. Keeping in mind, no parachute, mm-hmm. no safety cables. She uh, she apparently also did some archery on top of a plane. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> right? Now you're just That's showing off. <laughs> right? There is a video of her, Gladys Engel of the 13 Black Cats, performing the wheel replacement stunt mm-hmm. available on YouTube. It is incredible to watch. It's just sweaty palms the whole way. Every step she takes, you feel like she's going to die. And instead, she swings herself under the plane and replaces a wheel. And that was a great stunt. Absolutely. Yeah. We got to put that in the show notes, a link to that, because I want to see it. I, yeah, like, I'm hearing what you're saying, but I cannot picture in my head but how crazy that seeing it is even look. worse. Yeah. yeah. Because here's the thing. The wheels of these biplanes are just on struts, right. basically. So you have this 25-year-old woman swinging herself around the struts of the wings mm-hmm. and then under the plane to the struts of the wheels and then attaching a new wheel. Just nonchalantly, just, you know, a regular day at the office. It's incredible. Okay. Now, Gladys Engel passed away in 1981 at the age of 82 years old. Oh, so she survived all these wheel changes. She survived every (laughs) single one. Yep. Now, the Black Cats did have to disband when uh, most of the... Uh, Flying circuses had to disband in the late 1920s. Uh, 1929 through 1936 are basically the years in which the uh, flying circuses were forced to disband due to a number of uh, new regulations Mm -hmm. and the fact that there simply was no way to get profit from them anymore. It does kind of comfort me that at some point someone was like, this should be regulated. Yeah, yeah, there is that. We need our pilots to have licenses. We need our planes to have seatbelts. <laughs> yeah, Just the something like that. And they also they also stopped a lot of the um, uh, sales of the Jennies in the right, late nineteen right, twenties. Right. Yeah. So if you couldn't get a Jenny before then, you weren't going to be able to get right one up. after then. So and I imagine yeah. the Jenny's lifespan was not as as uh, robust. Not great. As <laughs> not great, my dude. It could have been. But now we're going to get into my favorite barnstormer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who is an amazing woman named Bessie Coleman. Okay, so I've Elizabeth Coleman. heard the name. Yep. How have I heard the name? Well, maybe you've seen one of the many streets named after her. Okay, possible. <laughs> there are a number of schools named after her. Mm-hmm. She is, has a scholarship award in her honor. She's had her own stamp. Oh, she's been on a stamp. <laughs> That's what I'm picturing. Uh, and of course... She is in the National Women's Hall of Fame, National Aviation Hall of Fame, and International Air and Space Hall of Fame. Yeah, she is. Because she's incredible. All right, tell me about her. All right. Elizabeth Coleman was born on January 26th in 1892 in a place called Atlanta, Texas. Hmm. So she's from Atlanta, but not that Atlanta. Gotcha. Uh, Atlanta, Texas is in northeastern Texas. Mm -hmm. She was the daughter of George and Susan Coleman. Susan Coleman was fully African-American. George Coleman was African-American and Cherokee. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth was the 10th of their 13 children. Wow. 
of which nine survived childhood. Mm. So, you know, that was part of the thing. You wanted to you wanted to really make sure that you had enough kids so that at least some of them lived long enough. Oh, that's so terrible. They moved around mm-hmm. and went to a place called Waxahachie, Texas, mm. which uh, is now the county seat of Ellis County, Texas. Uh, very nice. It's It's got ne- that nice sort of small, big town feeling to it. It's got a sizable population of about 40,000 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the time, it was mostly a sharecropping place. Bessie Coleman's average day when she was six years old was to walk four miles each day to her one-room school, which of course was segregated, Mm -hmm. where she developed an aptitude for reading and was, by all accounts, an absolutely outstanding uh, student in mathematics. Mm, Interesting. And then she she would go home and she would do her chores and she would go to church. When the cotton harvest came around... Her school and everything else gets thrown out the window because that's all they could do. Right. In 1901, when she was nine years old, George Coleman went up to Indian Territory, as it was called then, Oklahoma, as we refer to it now, to try to find better work. Mm -hmm. And uh, his family stayed in Waxahachie, Texas. There's very, very little detail on exactly how that separation went, but I'm sure it was awful. Mm. Uh, so when Bessie was 12 years old, she went to the Missionary Baptist Church School on a scholarship. And then at the age of 18, she took the money that she had saved up and she went to the Oklahoma Colored Agricultural and Normal University in Langston, Oklahoma, which is now simply just Langston University. Uh, she had about enough money for one term mm-hmm. and then she had to go back home. In 1915... The 23-year-old Bessie Coleman moved to live with her brothers in Chicago. Chicago was where she decided, I know what I'm going to do. And I'm going to... And I'm going to become a pilot. Of course, of course. Because the pilots were coming home from World War I. Mm-hmm. It's nine, nine, 1915, they're coming home, and they're talking about... Their, uh, their, their experience flying planes in the military. Right. Now, there is no American flight school that will allow black people or women. <laughs> so she sent a letter to one Robert S. Abbott. Have you ever heard of Robert Abbott? No. Okay. Robert Abbott is a very cool dude. In 1905, he founded a newspaper called the Chicago Defender. It was one of the first African-American newspapers, and it would repeatedly call out, you know, Jim Crow era violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would encourage the Great Migration uh, to get people in the American South to settle in the North. Mm-hmm. And he had this great thing where he would have Pullman porters take copies of the newspaper out beyond his regular uh, circulation mm-hmm. limit to African-American readers in the South. And... Uh, it was uh, it was a, a big deal. Uh, it still is online. Uh, it moved to an all online format in 2019, but it's still around. Oh, cool. And uh, the Chicago Defender is uh, it bills itself as the world's greatest weekly when it <laughs> sure. started out. And you know what? I'm, I'm fine with it, man. It did a lot of good. And one of the things that it did a lot of good for was Bessie Coleman. Uh, she contacted Robert Abbott. And he encouraged her, listen, go to France. 
Mm. The French will teach you. Interesting angle. He wrote a series of articles in the newspaper, and a prominent Chicago banker named Jesse Binga. Now, have you ever heard of Jesse Binga? Absolutely not. Jesse Binga is one of those uh, very, very, very cool unknowns, Mm -hmm. I guess, of the uh, African-American community of Chicago. He owned a bank. (laughs) Okay. And if you have any idea how hard it would have been for an African-American man to own a bank in the uh, 1920s, the legend goes that Jesse Binga came to Chicago in 1892 with $10 in his pocket Mm -hmm. and founded a bank and became a major real estate owner, and he was very responsible for uh, for finding housing for a lot of African-American people whose uh, white real estate interests would not allow them to purchase, you know, land or homes in certain places. Right. So he would do it through the bank. And uh, this got him death threats. This got his windows smashed in, all sorts of stuff. It was He was on the Ku Klux Klan list of people that if they ever get their hands on him, they, they, uh, you can tell he, he ticked off the right people. He was a good dude. Because African-Americans at the time couldn't use banks, he founded a bank. It grew up. It became a center for black business development in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And people during the Great Migration, moving north from the south had all sorts of economic opportunities that they never had before because they had access uh, access to a bank. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. He he was sort of a tempestuous person. One would think he had to be. Uh, very prone to speaking his mind, very prone to yelling and shouting at people who annoyed him. So uh, when the stock market crashed, Binga lost pretty much all of his money mm-hmm. and then was tried by uh, the state of of Illinois for embezzlement. Really? Yes. However, they couldn't really prove it. Mm -hmm. I'll go into this. This is a good side note. Okay. This all started when he tried to um, start a new bank right before the market uh, really started to crash. Mm -hmm. The state of Illinois needed a additional payment uh, for fees and some such of about $400,000. Binga State Bank was part of the Chicago Clearinghouse Association. I'm sorry, he... that was the name of his bank? Damn right it was. <laughs> I don't think I've I'm putting ever my money in Binga. <laughs> of a bank named after a person. That's amazing. It's fantastic. <laughs> All right, go um, on. So the, uh, the, the Binga State Bank was a member of the Chicago Clearinghouse Association, and mm-hmm. he went to them for a loan, and they turned him down. Mm-hmm. Now, he could have come up with that $400,000 in cash if he was if he liquidated a bunch of bank assets but the bank assets were all tied up in mortgage loans to black churches fraternal societies and just regular people mm-hmm. most of which had to stop making their payments because everybody was suddenly out of work right now he refused to seize the properties under liens And because of that, in 1930, the Auditor General of the state of Illinois shut down his bank, which wiped him personally out. He was indicted in March 1931 for embezzlement, Mm -hmm. arguing that he had taken out inadequately secure loans to speculate in real estate. And in something something of a miracle, the first trial in 1932 actually wound up with a hung jury. Huh. Yeah. 
So they abandoned that tactic and then tried to charge him with depositing money that was intended for investment into his personal account. Okay. And they found him guilty. The problem was with this was that he was sentenced to 10 years and basically the evidence because they they didn't produce actual like okay here's this person depositing the money here's us showing you putting the exact same amount into your uh your bank account mm-hmm. therefore you did this they basically were like here are his bank books and you know how these people are mm-hmm. yeah that was their argument and he's convicted and he's sentenced to 10 years in prison that sucks yeah his community was kind of like well that was extremely racist they're not wrong clarence Clarence Darrow was his attorney. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Darrow at this point was a very elderly man and he was basically retired. Um, and he could not, he could not convince the parole board to give him early release. Wow. A massive protests and a 10,000 signature petition from the community. The ones who had, remember, lost money because of him. Mm-hmm. They all came together in support of him being released and he was released in uh, 1938, mm. uh, on, he was paroled in 1938. Uh, his wife had died in 1933, and he spent the rest of his life in abject poverty, working at the St. Anselm's Church there for $15 a week as a janitor. Wow. In 1941, he was given a full pardon by Governor Dwight H. Green, mm-hmm. and he finally passed away in 1950. Uh, and is buried in the Oakwood Cemetery. But one of the people that he loaned money to was Bessie Coleman. So she could go to France and become a pilot. Excellent Sidebar investment. over. <laughs> Excellent investment. Invest in Bessie. So she goes to France. Uh-huh. She studies um, She studies French first at the Berlitz Language School in Chicago. And then goes to Paris to earn her pilot's license. She learns to fly in a French biplane. Okay. Which is actually much more primitively designed than the American biplanes are at the time. They're... Uh, They they were... They were... I thought they were um, all primitive, I guess. Well, they're... Yes, but there's the the ones that have brakes. And then there's the ones where you're just supposed to stick your feet out the side real hard. It's that level of difference. Okay, Um, gotcha. (laughs) uh, The the rudder bar was under her feet while she was flying the the French biplane. Huh. Is that not where it should be? (laughs) Now, okay. uh, on June 15th, 1921, mm-hmm. Bessie Coleman becomes the first black woman and first Native American to earn an aviation pilot's license. Nice. Uh, she earns it from the Fédération Aeronautique Internationale, and uh, she spends the next couple of months working with pilots in Paris, and then she sails back to the U.S., where the media picks up her story and everybody loves her. Awesome. Sort of. The problem is that she has no way to make money. Um, She's got <laughs> because a there's license. no such right, but there's no way to be a commercial pilot yet. Remember, so yeah. she could do those three things: she could smuggle, yeah, the mail, she could deliver the mail, the platypus, or she could barnstorm. Yeah. What did she decide to do? I bet it was. Platypus. She decided to barnstorm. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she couldn't find anybody willing to teach her barnstorming tricks in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So she went back to France uh, and actually went after after doing her advanced course in aviation in France. She went to the Netherlands to meet up with Anthony Fokker, no the kidding. founder of the Fokker Corporation. Yeah, 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 yeah. The biplane and guy. Uh, was trained by some of them. So. 
That was pretty great. Mm -hmm. She got the nickname of Queen Bess because she was awesome. Nice. You know, she still can't vote. Mm -hmm. She still can be lynched if something happens. You know, hate crimes are a daily kind of thing. She got to fly in the American Air Show of September 1922, which honored the veterans of the 369th Infantry Regiment of World War I, mm-hmm. which was famously the All Black Regiment. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was sponsored by uh, Abbott and the Chicago Defender, hmm. which billed, uh, they, they made sure to bill her as the world's greatest woman flyer. I mean... It was pretty great. Sounds like uh, they had they had a parachutist, mm-hmm. also black, named Hubert Julian perform, and uh, and then she would do all sorts of these really really cool stunts, and she did them over there. She did them uh, in Chicago. She basically would bounce around to all these different air shows, most of which were put on to honor World War One veterans. Right. Uh, her major repertoire of of daredevil maneuvers were uh, swoops towards the ground, mm-hmm. big loops, figure eights in the sky, which are very tricky to pull off in a biplane. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I'm just trying and, to picture uh, how that would look in my head, and I can't quite get there. And she would do uh, incredible, incredible stunts that were not only very difficult and dangerous to do, mm-hmm. but took a lot of guts. And I want to share I want to share one one really cool quote from Bessie Coleman here. So, quote, the air is the only place free from prejudices. I knew we had no aviators, neither men nor women, and I knew the race needed to be represented along the most important line, so I thought it my duty to risk my life to learn aviation, end quote. Pretty badass. Badass. Okay, so she had two loves here, right? Mm -hmm. She had aviation and she had the cause of the African-American human being, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so she had no problem with speaking out against racism and promoting aviation. So nice. she would go to these aviation events and she'd do all her cool stunts and then she'd get down and be like, yeah, and wouldn't it be great if, for example, black people were treated more kindly? Stuff like that. She made headlines for refusing to participate in events that wouldn't allow African-Americans to attend, Mm. which just simply wasn't done. Mm -hmm. She's fantastic. She came very close to being in a film produced by the African-American Seminole Film Production Company Mm -hmm. uh, called Shadow and Sunshine. However, she she refused to do it because the first scene in the movie was supposed to have her show up in tattered clothes with a walking stick and a pack on her back. Hmm. The writer Doris Rich wrote that, quote, she had no intention of perpetuating the derogatory image most whites had of most blacks, end quote. Her big dream was to establish an aviation school for African-American men and women. Mm -hmm. However, she would not quite make it there. We're going to talk about how she died, because there are still some questions nearly 100 years later. And some of the stuff is, you know, a lot of it is chalked up to, this is just the risks of the trade, but some of it is a little odd. All right. All right. In April of 1926, Coleman had purchased a a Jenny in Dallas, Mm -hmm. and uh, she was to partake in an air show in Jacksonville, Florida. 
she had a publicity agent and mechanic who was her friend William D. Wills, which is a great name, by the way, Mm -hmm. uh, who was 24 years old. And he had flown the plane from Dallas to Jacksonville on the way because the plane had been so badly maintained. He had to do three forced landings. Oh, man. This is not a safe plane. Yeah. Okay. So Coleman, you know, was was worried about it. But at the same time, she couldn't just not fly anything at this, mm-hmm. you know, air show. What she was trying to do was was she and Wills decided to fly up in it, take the lay of the land over Jacksonville. So because she wanted to do a, a cool para jump, parachute jump trick mm-hmm. uh, as part of the air show. And she wanted to make sure she could tell where she was from above. Right. When they were at about 3,000 feet above the ground, about 10 minutes into their flight, something went wrong. And the plane went into a dive and into a spin while diving, which is basically you cannot recover from that. She was thrown from the plane at about 2,000 feet. And, of course died when she hit the ground. Uh, William D. Wills fought with the controls to try to regain control, but the plane hit the ground, killing him on impact and Mm -hmm. burst into flames. A examination of the wreckage discovered that a wrench that had been used to service the engine had jammed the controls. What does that mean? It means that somehow... The controls of of the plane were disrupted because a wrench was jammed into them. <laughs> okay. Yeah. How do they so, know that happened before the accident and not in the crash? Because of the way that the wrench is positioned mm-hmm. in the crash, it it's something that had to have happened beforehand. If it had been, it's sort of like uh, based on the burn patterns, the wrench was in that position when the plane hit the ground not the wrench flew into that position after the plane Mm -hmm. you know crashed and uh, so there was there there has always been some question about whether or not her plane had been sabotaged Uh, most folks put it up there as just you know it's the risks of the trade these things just happened she's certainly not the first person to die because of this and she Mm -hmm. certainly wouldn't have been the last if uh if this had kept going on she was only 34 years old oh man uh they had her funeral in florida and her body was well sent back to chicago Mm -hmm. uh the african-american press carried the news of her death uh widely Mm. ida b wells led her ceremonies in Chicago. No kidding. Of which 10,000 mourners attended. Wow. Yeah. In 1934, Lieutenant William J. Powell, who had served in the uh, segregated units in World War I, he was one of the very first African-American aviators and civil rights activists. Mm -hmm. Uh, He dedicated his book, Black Wings, to Coleman, writing, quote, We have overcome that which was worse than racial barriers. We have overcome the barriers within ourselves and dared to dream, end quote. He founded the Bessie Coleman Aero Club in 1929. That sounds fun. Now, as some of her legacy, mm-hmm. 
Bessie Coleman is, uh, she is very well honored, mm-hmm. uh, but still needs to be, uh, still needs to be more honored because she's great. So uh, she has a public library in Chicago named after her. Mm-hmm. There are roads at the O'Hare International Airport at Chicago named after her. There are roads in the Oakland International Airport, the Tampa International Airport, and in the Frankfurt International Airport in Germany. No kidding. The location of her former home, 41st and King Drive in Chicago, has a memorial plaque that was put there by the Chicago Cultural Center. Mm -hmm. And it has become a tradition for African-American aviators to drop flowers while they fly over her grave at Lincoln Cemetery. Wow. That's really sweet. She has numerous Mm -hmm. schools named after her. Her original hometown of Atlanta, Texas, has a regional history museum, which has Mm -hmm. a a replica of her yellow biplane, the Queen Bess. Wow. Yep. Full size? Uh, It is not a full size replica. (laughs) That would be cool. Uh, You can't climb into it and take off, unfortunately. That's all I want. She has a number of honors. She is in the National Women's Hall of Fame, the National Aviation Hall of Fame, the International Air and Space Hall of Fame Mm -hmm. at the San Diego Air and Space Museum. And in 2021, when Juneteenth became a federal holiday, Mm -hmm. a flyover was held in Colorado to honor her and the new holiday. Nice. Uh, She has a mountain on Pluto named after her. (laughs) Okay. Yep. Yep. (laughs) And uh, to commemorate the 100th anniversary of Coleman earning her flying license in 1922, American Airlines held a commemorative flight from Dallas-Fort Worth to Phoenix, staffed by an all-black female crew from the pilots and flight attendants to the cargo team members and the aviation maintenance technicians. Mm-hmm. That was pretty cool. Uh, she will be honored on one of the American Women Quarters cool. in 2023. So keep your eyes peeled for those. Will do. And that is the incredible story of barnstorming, the crazy stunts that they would do, including Gladys Engel, and the amazing life cut way too short of Bessie Coleman. That was a wild flight, Greg. I enjoyed it. Excellent. And I never want to go on a Get biplane on a plane ever, ever again. again. No, no. <laughs> biplanes are not my thing, dude. There's too much open space for biplanes to make me comfortable. Yeah, I don't like having the your face directly in the wind. I know they're slower, but... If you have to wear goggles while flying a plane... It's not for me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Yep. All right. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact-check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography plus a link to that cool video will be available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com, or if you'd like to shame us publicly... You know you do. Why not use our Instagram, at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My sister selected our next disaster, so we know it's going to be a good one. You know it. What's it going to be, Ella? So we had a lot of company this summer. I can't remember if I told you. Yeah. We had cousins from all over the world coming to visit us, which was great. Yeah. One of my favorite cousins came and visited us from New Zealand, and we were talking about mm-hmm. the podcast. Oh, okay. And she suggested <laughs> the Tungiwai disaster, which we did a few episodes yep. ago. But then she yep. said, you know the story that I always heard when I was growing up that scared the crap out of me. 
Okay. Is the story of the ghost ship Joyita. <gasps> and that's what we're going to talk about next week. I'm so excited. I cannot wait for that. Excellent.